Hello, this is Impact Ed, and I'm H.D. Chambers with A-Leaf ISD. Today our topic is one of critical importance uh, in the profession of education, and uh, it has to do with teachers. And we're going to talk today with uh, Dr. Bob McPherson, Dean of College of Education at the University of Houston, uh, the main campus. And we're also going to talk to Dr. Elizabeth Velos-Powell, the Assistant Superintendent for Human Resources in A-Leaf ISD. And we're going to, the, the conversation is, is, is going to be surrounding the challenges that, that's happening, not only in the greater Houston area, or not just in A-Leaf, but across the country, as it relates to individuals going into the teaching profession. And we, we, um, those of us in this field uh, have always said the most important factor in a child's education is their teacher, it's, you know, right after their parents, it's their, it's their teacher. And we're beginning to see and have been seeing for quite a while a steady decline in those individuals going into our profession. And, and that's, that's you, know, you know, the term crisis may be strong or maybe it's not strong, but it's having an impact. And so today I'd like for like for, uh, appreciate Dr. McPherson and Dr. Velos Powell for joining us, and I'm going to start with with higher ed and 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 Bob with the the amount of time you've been in this profession and you've been attempting to 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 not only incentivize but prepare young men young women to go into the profession. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're seeing and what what the what what's happening from the higher ed's perspective. Sure. So. Uh we, we, we find it fairly easy to attract kids who are interested in teaching at the elementary level and preschool level. The biggest challenge is finding people to teach specialty courses or science courses um, in high school. And so uh, we've got several programs in place. Uh, we've been fairly successful in recruiting new teachers into the uh, teacher preparation program uh, at U of H, um, in part because we are part of a program called Teach Forward Houston. This is an HISD um, initiative where they basically pay students to come to the University of Houston to become teachers. Uh, so we're trying to bring in more, um, if you will, first-time college freshmen uh, into the into the program. But the reality is the vast majority of our students are um, transfer students from community colleges in the area. Uh, they uh, they look like the the city of Houston. I proudly say we have about seventy-one percent of our Undergraduate students are students of color. Um, many of them are first generation. In fact, the vast majority are first generation college students, uh, and uh, they they uh, they want to go back and teach in their neighborhood. Uh, generally yeah. speaking, yeah, we we see that in Aleaf. Yeah. Uh, I mean, every year out of you know, a typical year, we'll hire three three hundred fifty teachers, and I I don't know Elizabeth, ten fifteen percent. Or A-Leaf grads. And, and yeah, and you're right. It's it's kind of a, I don't know that, I, well, I can tell you, I had no desire to go back and teach <laughs> where I went to school. So says something about the kid and says something yeah. about the, the community. So what, in, in, your, in your, um as, as you're finding it easier, I guess, to recruit or to have students go into the elementary ages versus the secondary, what, what are they telling you? I mean, is, is there... Is there some anecdotal reasons why? Are they scared of the high school kid? Are they scared scared of the course? What's the what's the reasons? You know, most of them are just drawn to working with younger children, and and they're motivated by their own personal experiences. Or in, we get a lot of returning parents who come back to complete a degree and uh, uh, in education who who now value what a public education can do for them and what they would like for it to do for their children or their grandchildren. 
have you have you seen just in raw numbers over the the course of your tenure at U of H as, as the numbers of individuals going into the education degree plan? It's going up Is incrementally it? for mm-hmm. us, but that's not true for most of the teacher preparation programs around the state. Right. I think that's in part because we're in Houston and the city of Houston just continues to grow. Uh, and the University of Houston's developed a brand, if you will, uh, that that is attracting uh, a higher caliber student than we might have back in our days when we were considered a commuter campus. But good, thank you. So Elizabeth, I mean, Bob talked about the higher ed component of it. What, what are you seeing from your vantage point and the colleagues you work with with other districts across not only the region but the, the state? Well, I would have to agree that we, too, see the vacancies in positions that are unique, for example, in bilingual education, special ed. We have a hard time finding uh, science composite because it's an upper-level course. And then, of course, we do have vacancies in our, our elementary classes. But in our elementary classes, we tend to see teachers wanting to come teach pre-K through 2 rather than the upper grades. And when we talk to them and try to find out why that's the case. Most of them, it's because of the accountability system that occurs up in the fourth grade. Are there, are there particular reasons that, you know, is, is, you know, one common theme or one common assumption is that kids who are, I say kids, when I say kids, I'm referring to college-age students now who are making these decisions. One of the assumptions we've always made is that students who typically are interested or good at mathematics or the fields of science tend to go into other, either the College of Business, College of Engineering, uh, College of Health Sciences. Is that, a, is that a true assumption from your perspective at U of H? A- absolutely is. We have a, 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 another program called uh, Teach Houston, which is a replication, single largest replication of a program that was started at the University of Texas where we're preparing math and science teachers. But it's being done in large part by the faculty in our Natural Science and Mathematics College. Uh, but these kids come into this program, they basically get a free ride uh, if they complete the program. Uh, but what happens that junior year or that senior year, their, their classmates in chemistry or biology are going out and doing practicum work where they're making sixty grand a year and they're going to start salaries at $75,000 a year. So we lose some of those kids and, and they come in very idealistic and determined and then they look at the dollar difference and they go, I, I, yeah. I can't do this. Yeah, and you can't, you can't ignore that. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, one of the things that in the, in the K-12 system, when we when, – with some of the students that Bob just referred to, when they actually stick with it and they get into to teaching mathematics or science or some of the specialized courses. And then what are we seeing now? Are we seeing those kids to – kids, those young men, young women, are they are, – are, are we seeing them move into – out of the profession to go to go do exactly what Bob just said, which is make a little bit more money? So I would agree that we do see those kids coming into school at the beginning. For the first three or four years, we keep them. But as you mentioned earlier, they see bigger bucks outside of education, mm-hmm. so they tend to take those kind of jobs. In fact, most of our um, students that leave, or our teachers that leave, are in the years zero to five years of education, and that they leave to go find bigger and better jobs in their eyes. We, we place students um, in mostly inner-city schools, particularly HISD, uh, and they go in with great passion. But after about two or three years, they, they, they want to start a family. They want to buy a house. So they can't even begin to afford to, uh, 
uh, do that in the city. So they start moving out into the suburbs. Um, it leaves a void. It does. It, it, it leaves does. a void. Speaking of a void, we in Texas, as I get ready to prepare for the next year, I look at what our projections are going to show and how many teachers are going to be needed. So in the state of Texas, they're looking at needing 78,000 students, um, teachers. And from that, we have probably around 20% of our, our teaching staff unfilled. So they go into the school year without having filled positions. And we tend to get substitutes or other people to, to take that role. So to put, to put it in perspective, the state of Texas, um, I, I know this, at the end of the 2017-18 school year, had roughly 365,000 teachers, needing another 80,000 that we don't have to, to fill the, the classrooms. You were going to comment on that? Bob? Well, uh, you know, we've been in a crisis, a teacher shortage crisis since about 2010 when the legislature did some what I would call draconian cuts in the mm-hmm. budget. And so that started uh, teachers exiting fairly quickly and or students not wanting to come into a major in education. Uh, but um, uh, the way that the states tried to respond to that is largely through um, the sponsorship of alternative certification programs. Mm-hmm. And these are largely for-profit enterprises where um, uh, a student pays a sizable amount of money. They usually get about uh, uh, maybe 80 hours worth of observation and then they, they go into the school and, and what they get basically is on-the-job training. And the quality of that on-the-job training varies considerably uh, by school district but also by individual in, in the individual schoolhouse. So, yeah, It's funny that you mentioned that because this year we hired 60% of our new teachers from ACP programs and 40% from the traditional. And just as you mentioned, each of them come in with different experiences and some have never been around young children. Right. So we have had to take a look at that and offer different kinds of professional development for those ACP teachers because they have not had the pedagogy and that type thing in their programs. And we see that as a challenge. Yeah, there are 135 uh, teacher education programs in the state of Texas, uh, but the reality is we can't – we're mostly strapped by state funding as well, so we can't really grow or expand uh, much. But what we do know is the kids that go through a traditional teacher education program are far more likely to be teaching seven years after they graduate, uh, where you get a churn or a turnover of ACP folks coming in with, with, again, very idealistic and and good intentions and going, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought, or I I could make more money back out of and so, uh, so you know, we're, it's, a, it's a conversation that, that we're having statewide about how we can kind of ramp up and increase the number of, if you will, traditionally trained teachers uh, to go out and teach in our public schools. Well, we definitely see a difference in the teacher quality. Um, and for that reason, we tend to provide different kinds of staff development to those teachers. And in fact, this year, we've taken a group of teachers that we're looking at. And we're doing kind of like focus groups to determine what is it that you feel like you're lacking. And then our PD department's going to support them in that way because it's a very different um, pathway than what right. a traditional teacher has gone through. The professional development that, that districts are using right now or having to use is, is different. I mean, some of it's consistent, but a lot of it's different. Uh, a lot of it's driven by student behaviors. And I think a lot of districts... Uh, a lot of school systems across the country, I can, I can speak for one, and, and the one I'm the responsible for, 
But we're seeing the, the behaviors of students coming to school different. And I don't I don't mean um, the typical misbehavior that we're all. I'm, I'm not talking about just getting in trouble. You know, doing doing things that a that a that a kid normally does. We have students who are showing up with some serious mental, psychological, emotional issues that, by no fault of their own, uh, whether it's home environment, what they've been exposed to. There's a there's a, a million different reasons for that. What I'm, I'm curious about, Bob, at, at the higher ed level, has there been adjustments or changes in the in teacher prep programs on dealing with classroom management with a a changing student population, not just in the way they look or act, but the way they behave? Yeah, and, and and not to beat up on the ACP programs, but typically somebody takes a online course on classroom management, uh, and then they go out and have to manage a classroom. What we try to do is prepare students to be um, ready the first day that they go on the job. And so they start doing observations as early as their freshman year, and then they kind of ramp up to their student teaching year or their residency year. We're requiring our students to spend an entire year on a half-time basis uh, in the school so they get to see the beginning and the middle and the end. It also builds a trust with the district because it, oftentimes what happens is we put kids out during the, in the springtime, testing season comes up, and suddenly their opportunities for teaching drop pretty dramatically. Uh, so did I answer your question? Yeah, uh, and, I, and, I, and, and you've actually probed an, another question. And, and it, again, it's, it stems based on some assumptions. But we've talked about money being a, either an inhibitor or, or disincentive. Uh, but the testing issue. Uh, we we find quite often that teachers who are very prepared, whether they come from a traditional prep program or a alternative certification program, once they get into the classroom and realize that in many cases they spend ninety percent of their time preparing kids for a multiple choice test. Right. Do you do you find that in conversations as being a problem? Well, well, fortunately, it's starting to decline just a little bit. The states made some adjustments in mm-hmm. their their testing, but no, it's still you know it's. It's we we have these um, calls for value added measures of the impact of teachers are having on kids that are coming from these um, uh, largely poor uh, uh, environments, oftentimes traumatized, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, it's a factor. It's a factor. It's a factor. It's a factor, Elizabeth. So one of the things that I do is I, I prepare for the next year. I look to see why teachers are leaving. So nationally, I found that uh, teachers leave the profession because of assessment accountability. That's the number one reason for teachers leaving. They feel that there's too much pressures put on them by the state, and for that reason, they leave. A second issue is maybe administrative issues, having to do extra duties, things that they weren't accustomed to or thinking that that would be part of their job, all the extra after hours, that type thing. And then um, just the dissatisfaction with teaching. They thought it was going to be about getting to teach the way they want to teach, but once you get into the schools and there's an accountability system, sometimes it it has to be very... um, uh, intentional for everybody to be doing the same thing. So those are some of the reasons that we've seen why people are leaving um, education. And, and, you know, we're, we're not opposed to accountability measures. We're just opposed to very badly uh, formed accountability uh, measures. And, the um, you know, the ultimate question in education, if you will, is what teachers coming from what kind of preparation programs, working with which kids, under what circumstances produces what effects. Uh, it, you know, it's, a, it's a far more complex enterprise than people give it credit to. So, Yeah, I, 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 for those that, that listen to this that, that are not in education, uh, I think we ought to revisit 
this notion of teachers going into the profession and not being able to teach because there's a there's a a certain amount of truth to that 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 even districts as large as ours we tend to centralize a lot of what's being taught at what pace is it being taught and that inhibits a lot of creativity and all in the name of assessment but I want to I'm glad you mentioned it Bob that that you know, you know, the teaching profession and those individuals that are in the profession don't mind being held accountable. No. They don't, they don't, and they, they, as a matter of fact, they welcome it because it gives them an opportunity to prove what they're doing. It's when you get these, it's when you find measures that are, are using measures to define accountability that have, in many cases, very little to do with the, the art of teaching and the art of learning. And so we could talk, we could spend an entire session just on that issue alone. Right. I mean, where do you see this going? I mean, you said you've seen trend lines a little more positive than, than maybe in the past for U of H. But as you talk to your colleagues at other universities, what, what's what's their – are they in – has the train wreck already happened and they're trying to recover? Or what? Uh, in some cases, that's true. Largely in the larger urban districts or, or urban institutions that are based in large urban areas, they're having an easier time to recruit. But the smaller regional colleges – uh, and, and, and part it, something we haven't talked about is one of the inhibiting factors around becoming a teacher is, in fact, the cost of tuition. And that's why we've created these programs that, that incentivize students by paying at least some portion of their, their tuition. But the cost of higher education, you know, is growing at an exponential rate. And so I had a call from a, a, a friend whose daughter had just graduated from Baylor University, and uh, he said she was. He said she was in a teacher education program, but she didn't get certified. But I'm just now realizing that I've been paying sixty thousand dollars a year for her education, and she may never make that you know, in the first ten years of her career. And I said, you know, that's 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 part of the the, the challenge. It is. It is. And I think another challenge that we're seeing is that the type of students that we're receiving are very different. It used to be. We didn't have to have as many bilingual teachers. Right. And now that we're offering, which is a wonderful thing, different kinds of programs, dual language, bilingual, that's having us needing to fill bilingual positions. So we're seeing, based on student needs, a very big difference in who we need to right. hire. The student debt, I would probably argue, and we're going to talk to a teacher here in a little bit, but I'd probably argue that if teacher or those going into the profession could come out without the debt, perhaps the salary would be you know, a little bit more manageable, a little bit more doable. But knowing I'm going to come out of this college education with anywhere from thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars of debt. That's, I mean, you, yeah, you just bought a a Mercedes Benz before you ever graduated college. Now you got to pay the thing off. And, and you know, it's just hard to imagine that you would have to go in debt in order to go teach in a high poverty, uh, low high poverty, um, uh, poor uh, school, and then have to pay yeah. back your loans. It yeah. just doesn't make sense. No, I, I, you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so far different from the private sector mm-hmm. where you're rewarded both financially and other ways to, to go to the tougher jobs to, to relocate. And there's all kinds of solutions and, I mean, all kinds of issues that we can find. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, uh, Elizabeth, what are we seeing or what are you seeing in, in terms of solutions or 
So as we identified the problem of people leaving, one of the things that was tasked of me last year was to determine why they're leaving and how can we keep them. So what we did is we created an HR advisory committee. And through the committee, we gathered teachers throughout the district and we had conversations with them. What makes you want to stay in a leave? What can we do to, to keep people here? And so we've come up with a comprehensive list of things that they've mentioned. Some of the things that they've mentioned were giving teachers choice and voice, being able to speak what they think and feel. Um, relationships, that was almost number one to them, relationships with their administrators. Um, one of the things that we're working with our administrators on is also hiring the right person for the right job. Sometimes we hire teachers that we needed somebody for fourth grade, but they're better suited in a kindergarten classroom. So be more intentional in how we hire them and where we place our teachers. Um, the other thing they mentioned was a more effective mentor program because a lot of times the funding has been taken from us through the state. They used to give us funding for mentor mm -hmm. programs. They no longer do that. So we have to find ways to be able to provide the mentoring with less dollars. And so we're extending our mentoring programs for some of our teachers up instead of the one-year program for two years because that's one of the things that they requested. Um, you know, also being coached. Brand new teachers have so much they have to learn that by the time they learn one thing, it's, it, it's time to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so what we found is we found a program that we're very pleased with and we're piloting this year. It's called Relay. And basically, it's an ACP program where they hire uh, people with a degree, and then we get to have them in our classrooms as an intern. And so they're learning the skills that they would normally learn in a, in a student teacher, but they are with that person all day, all year, and then they're acting as a paraprofessional slash intern. And that's been very effective because what they tend to do is this year you're going to learn, this week you're going to learn only how to walk the kids to the restroom, come back, and keeping everybody engaged. Next time you add circle time. And so each time they gain a skill each week. And so that seems to be a better way of, of uh, helping the ACP students learn about children and their behaviors. And it seems to help us. We're part of a national consortium called U.S. Prep. And it's a Gates-funded enterprise to largely reform teacher preparation programs. So the residency program I referred to earlier, that's a change that we've made. Also, we're, we're placing our students in student teaching in small cohorts, five to seven students in the same building. So they have more opportunity for peer-to-peer -peer learning on site. We're also embedding, at least on a part-time basis, a faculty member who works with the kids work with their supervising teachers, the mentoring teachers, the principals, uh, and it's it's a win-win-win. But it's a costly way of, of preparing folks. And so, you know, with, fortunately, we've had the Gates funding in place. But now, my challenge as a dean is how can we ramp this up so that we can uh, do this for all of our all of our kids. What what are what are your thoughts on the for those that don't know the student teaching model typically was for a semester. You know, teacher would go out and be assigned to a teacher and have a monitor. Um, it seems like more and more moving to more residency type right. models, whether it's a year long. Is that is that what you're describing and what you're seeing? Right. Either going to a half-time, full year, uh, or a full-time uh, one semester so that they, they do get a greater sense of, of uh, what it's like to be a teacher. Yeah. yeah, I've always, these conversations you have with those going into the medical field, they're doing residency, and it's, the granted, they're being paid a little bit. But they're being dumped into the into the profession on a full time basis, and and uh, I've always thought that a the best experience that a, a potential teacher could have was spending a year 
in a classroom. Right. You know, and I think they'd get more out of that than sending a, spending a semester in a professor's classroom, with all due respect to right. College of Ed professors. But the, uh, the this notion of the residency has always been appealing to me as a, as a model, right. particularly for our ACP teachers. Our teachers, our, our kids love it. The teachers they're working with love it. Uh, they they get to develop a relationship over a course of a full year. So uh, it's it's been a great thing for us. But again, getting back to the cost issue, you know, my kids, mostly first generation college students, uh, who have their own families they're taking care of, and so they're doing their student teaching for a half a day, and then running over to the 7-Eleven and working, you know, mm-hmm. five or six hours and then rushing home to do their homework and do help their kids do their homework. It's, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. So one of the things that we're doing trying to um, meet that challenge is we have our TAFI students, which are the Texas Association of Future Educators. Mm-hmm. We have a group of students that are uh, juniors in high school that we already put them into classrooms. So for the two years, they get to do that in school. But we've also been very fortunate to get with a university that does a lot of online uh, teaching. So the child will be able to continue once they graduate from high school. We've guaranteed them if they go through this program and you want to go into a certain field that's hard to fill, you come back to us. We'll get you a job as a paraprofessional. And during the time that they're a paraprofessional, they can go to school because it's all online. And then their student teaching will be done with us as well. And so that's, one, saving the cost for the student as well as helping us keep our own homegrown. So that's been very helpful. And that's I think that's, of all the strategies out there, it may be the one that's the closest under our nose is developing your own. You mentioned early on, Many, many students who want to go into this want to go back to their, their home district that they graduated from. Not all, but, but, but many do. We have to tap into that. We, the K-12 system, we have to tap into that and, and give those kids exposure to the positive sides of, of teaching and, and education. Uh, because if we don't, uh, going back to something Elizabeth said earlier, that 23% of the classrooms, was that across the state? Or? That was the statewide. So 23%, and this ought to be alarming to people listening to this. If you're a parent of a school-age kid somewhere in Texas, and probably worse throughout the country, um, there's a twenty almost quarter, one in a four chance that they're in a classroom without a certified teacher. And it's not because the school or the district isn't doing their job or isn't attempting. It's just they're not out there. Right. And especially in more hard-to-fill positions like bilingual or science, the ones that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. we go for months trying to find the right person to put in those classrooms. So it's it's very difficult in those hard-to-fill positions. So what does a, Elizabeth, what does a, you've been an elementary principal before. If 25% of your teaching teachers were either substitute teachers or long-term subs, what does that do to you as a, as a, as a campus leader? And what, how's that going to ultimately impact student performance and student achievement? So we talked a little bit about classroom management. So first of all, I, I think start there uh, with teachers that are inexperienced or, or substitutes that are inexperienced in this area. We see a lot more uh, challenging things occurring in the classroom because the teachers don't have the skills to, to meet those needs. The second thing is uh, curriculum. We have so much coaching that we have to pull away the specialist to do some you know, one-on-one coaching in those classrooms, which doesn't allow them to work with the rest of the group. So we tend to see a decrease in our scores because we're having to coach these people up and not be able to support everybody else. So it's a huge challenge. Um, as we mentioned earlier, if we can find people that are from within the area that want to get, stay here and, and 
hire them as paraprofessionals and then teachers, we tend to keep those people. As you mentioned earlier, we talked about you know people leaving the profession goes back to people coming to the profession. So if they're leaving the profession, I've hired probably 40% of my staff are zero to five year teachers of the new teachers that I hired this year, which means you start all over again with all the training that they need because they're brand new teachers. So it's a big challenge for us. You know, uh, typically a teacher in a minute and a half has to make at least 20 uh, discretionary decisions about what's going on in the classroom. And so the, you know, the idea that you're not adequately prepared to make that, those quick decisions is, 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 is a major challenge. One, one effective teacher, research shows that one effective teacher, the positive effects of that teacher can last up to three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a negative teacher uh, and uh, compounds the problem by about the same amount. And if you get two consecutive years of negative teachers or poor teachers or just inexperienced teachers, I mean, they may be well-intended, but they're still learning the art and the craft of right. the profession. Uh, it, it has lasting effects on kids. So. We tend to see those teachers that are unhappy with the profession also out a lot. So even yeah. if they're a full-time teacher, they're not happy with what they're doing. They're taking a lot of sick days, leaving our kids without a certified teacher in the classroom. We're having to get substitutes. And just nationally, a child from K to 12, by the time they finish high school, they would have had one full year of a substitute. And I blame it on our systems that we're not able to provide our teachers to those kiddos. Uh, you know that reminds me that they're, they're, we have the, the, these folks in the in the university setting, but the folks who earn their uh, sick leave and then burn it uh, on, on a monthly basis, you know, and so we're constantly having to fill in. That's usually a warning sign to us that this is a person that really doesn't want to be here. Yeah, it's pretty common in any profession. I yeah. think uh, if they're not there, they typically don't want to be there. Yeah. And I, I, one of the things I want to comment on was the number of. I'm going to use this term. I don't know if it's the right term, but the number of unoccupied classrooms by certified teachers. There may be an adult in there. The 23% was a national number. That was state. I mean, excuse me, the state of Texas number. Some districts are lower. I mean, ours, I don't think ours is that high. I mean, our turnover rate is the low, the one of the lowest in the area, in the area by far. And and so we, we don't struggle. A-Leaf doesn't struggle as much. What we, but as Elizabeth was saying, I think what we're what we're attempting, what we're having to do now, particularly with ACP teachers, is bring them in, and spend so much time on the job training. And when you do that, there is going to be an impact on student achievement as defined by Texas. And it brings me back, and I'm interested in y'all's opinions on this. It brings me back to this notion of, of the way we define student achievement through standardized test scores. Some, as you know, some some teachers are pretty good at that. That's It's really not that difficult to teach a kid to be prepared to take a multiple choice test. It takes a lot of work to be creative and, and put kids in environments in which they're they're applying their, their knowledge and skills. Um, this, this notion of a teacher being prepared to be an innovative teacher, creative teacher, have you seen at the college level, at the preparation level, that that has been sacrificed as a part of the training or the experience or or is it measurable, or can you tell? Yeah. Well, I, one area that we um, struggle with is that everybody's pushing ed tech, you know, online instruction, you know, flipping classrooms and doing a variety of things. Well, we can prepare our students for that uh, to some degree, but if they go into a school district that doesn't have a whiteboard or doesn't have uh, technology, it's kind of it's kind of wasted. 
uh, uh, time for them. So, you know, we struggled with creating teachers who were thoughtful and reflective, uh, who can kind of self-evaluate. You can use data uh, that they're deriving from the kids' performance in the classroom. Uh, and uh, uh, and then reach out for coaching or or uh, mentoring or just peer to peer consultation with other teachers. And I think that too causes one of our shortages in teaching because we get the very best and we make them specialists or principals. So that tends to ha- also impact the classroom, but yeah. they serve a role to help coach all teachers. But we do tend to see sometimes our best teachers going out of the classroom into some of these specialized roles, which keeps, you know, the best teachers out of the classroom. Well, and one thing that does happen to good teachers oftentimes, depending on who the building principal is, I'm sure, Elizabeth, you never did this. (laughs) But if you've got a teacher who can manage the kids, right, that has good uh, classroom management skills, you're inclined to push another couple of students, particularly problematic students, their way. Well, that, that, that... that, that could be a problem, but also vice versa. Brand new right. teachers receiving the most difficult students. Exactly. And sometimes that happens, and yes. we just need to be more intentional about how we place our students in the classrooms. Yeah, there's, there's a, the, the, the preparation that's given for, for a teacher. Um, I've, always, I've always thought that there are teachers that, that deserve, and, and, and rightfully so, the state is talking about this. I don't know what action is going to happen, but there are those who deserve to make twice the amount of money they're making. They're, they're, we have to do something. When I say we, the royal we, it's the ISDs, the higher ed, the state of Texas. We have to do something about compensation to, to incentivize a good quality teacher to stay in the classroom so that they don't have to, you know, move up the, the, the corporate ladder, if you will, in, in education to make a little bit more money, which is which is true. And Elizabeth said it. I mean, our, our typically our best and brightest, when you ask, when they when they apply for an assistant principal's job or a principal's job, typically the reason they, they respond with is when you ask them why, they go, well, I want to be able to have a better, a greater impact, not just on my kids. I want to be able to deliver what and share what I, the skills I have with other teachers. And that's a great thing. Problem is, is we don't have many great teachers following them in the pipeline to backfill them leaving. So we have got, again, the role we we have got to do something on compensation. And uh, if we believe as a state, if as a people, if we believe that that this is the most critical issue, and people like Dr. Kleinberg and others who have said, if we don't get it right with this generation of students, particularly poor non English speaking students. We will not benefit and we will not have a successful future for the state of Texas, much less the greater Houston area moving forward. And to get the best and brightest, we have to pay them. And that goes into what my data shows me is some of our most difficult uh, campuses have the highest turnover rate. And it's not because they don't want to be there. It's because it's so difficult and they have to do the same job that everybody else does, plus more for the same pay. And so that has been a big issue for us. I've spent some time over the last several years and in places where you don't typically see a college of education dean, uh, school reformers who who keep throwing out the idea that, well, they've done it in Finland, they've done it in Hong Kong, and they, you know, I, I've met the secretary of education for Finland, and he said, you know, we're just doing what you guys were doing back in the 1950s, but our kids are getting paid uh, – as much as an attorney or a physician, and we value teachers. You guys in the United States, 
you really don't seem to value your teachers anymore. So, and that's the truth. And and I think that's a good point to end on. Uh, if, if if for those listening to this, uh, regardless of where you are, there there has to be a an, an organic movement of supporting teachers, um, regardless of the content, regardless of what grade level, uh, because it seems like, and I'm, it seems to me over the last decade or so, teachers have taken. A, a whipping. The profession's taken a whipping. The a whipping. That's a Southeast Texas term for <laughs> getting spanked. For those of you that don't, that don't realize what a whipping is or a whooping, but but they've they've been they've been used as a as a, a a scapegoat in many cases for what some people consider to be low performing poor you know poor poor performing schools. I take issue with that, and that's going to be another issue we're going to take have one day on this podcast. But I want to thank both of you. And if there's if there's anything that you haven't said that you would like to to comment on, I'd, I'd give you this opportunity. Um, but I I really appreciate Dr. McPherson you coming down from U of H and, and sharing your insight. Uh, we've known each other several years now, and I've, I've watched and been a, been a small part of just watching what U of H has done and participating in that. And it's it's greatly appreciated, greatly appreciated. Elizabeth, every day I watch her what she does with are almost 3,500 teachers and 6,500 employees. And so uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's really helpful to have a higher ed and a K-12 person, people that know their business talking and having a conversation. So I'm being joined now by Michelle Pena, uh, a teacher at Cummings Elementary in the Eagle Independent School District. And, and I just finished having, having a conversation with uh, the Dean of College of Education at the University of Houston main campus and the Assistant Superintendent for Human Resources for uh, for a leaf and and a, really that conversation with those two individuals is about the teaching profession which is really not fair to have a conversation without having somebody who's actually in the profession a teacher and hence michelle is 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 here with us so thank you very much for for joining this conversation about the teaching profession thank you for having me absolutely uh, michelle just um been in the classroom 13 years this is my 13th year yes sir cummings elementary what grade have you taught? I taught second grade for four years. The last, this is my ninth year to teach health tech. And so I teach all the students K through four and, and health matters and health matters and computer health matters and computers. Technology, yes. <laughs> and so we're always being told by the, the, the workforce and others that students don't come to them with soft skills and it's you very know, important. <laughs> exactly. And, you're, and that's what you're trying to accomplish with a bunch of absolutely four, five, six, seven year olds, right? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for, for joining us. I know this isn't something you don't normally do in your in your professional life, but uh, I thought it was critical. I mean, matter of fact, I don't I don't want to have a discussion about teachers without talking to a teacher. And superintendents sometimes are bad about that. We're bad about we know better. I have not been in the classroom since 1992 as a teacher, so I don't have, I'm under no illusion that I have a clue, much less at the elementary level. I was always at the high school level. But I, but I want to segue from the conversation we had with Dr. McPherson and Dr. Phyllis Powell about the profession and, and get your perspective on the challenges and uh, uh, those who think that teachers get the summers off and <laughs> they get paid all this money for not working and um, they're uh, they're glorified babysitters right exactly you've heard that right oh yes talk, talk a little bit again from your perspective but also on behalf of other teachers 
kind of how do you respond to, to, to that? They need to come in the classroom and try to do what we do because unless you are there in the trenches doing the work, you have no idea the struggles. It's a lot of fun, and we do it because we love the kids, and so much joy comes from that, but it is a lot of work. And, and the work, um, if you've never been around kids other than raising them and the people listening to this, there will be some that are teachers and some that have never been in the classroom other than when they were in school. But explain the work from your perspective. What, what, what is the work managing behavior? Is it teaching them skills? What, what define the work? It encompasses everything. You know, a lot of the managing behavior, you have such a different, um, the different students from different home situations. Um, You don't know what they're facing at home. Um, And then they come to school and they bring a lot of their baggage from home to school. And it's hard for us to know that. So you're handling behaviors that way. A lot of um, the students interacting with each other. And then also... um, just preparing for the lessons and getting everything ready for the day-to-day activities, it's a lot. Has, has the state testing system, <laughs> uh, she, for those, I know we're not on camera, she just raised her eyes and almost had a heart attack when I asked <laughs> this question. So, so talk about the, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want us to beat up on the state testing system, but, but talk about the, the, the pressures that it puts on teachers and, and students and, and and students in a real way well I mean you know a lot I mean just talking to teachers most teachers want to teach second grade they don't want to get into the third grade fourth grade um, levels because that's when the standardized testing comes in it is a lot of work and then with the Cummings we're all um, we are not blocked we are self-contained so the third grade fourth grade teachers are responsible for every test. So explain to the audience what self-contained means. Self-contained means you teach all subjects. You teach the math, the reading, the um, social studies, everything. Where some block classes you'll teach just language arts and just math and science. With self-contained you're, respons- with self-contained, you're responsible for every subject. So you have to be an expert in every field. Everything. And, and I would argue there's very few professions out there that expects a physician to be a orthopedic surgeon as well as a brain surgeon as well as a correct correct I mean I mean yes. we're, we're asking you guys to deal with little minds on a multitude of different levels and if you don't do well we we kind of put a stick at it. you know <laughs> use a stick the state right I mean it's exactly a, so you're 13 years into it if you had it to do over again I would. Would you? That's what I always wanted to do. My mom and dad are teachers. I come from teachers. My mom's taught for 48 years, and she's still in the classroom. Um, High school, math. (laughs) But, you know, that's just always what I wanted to do. And so I can't imagine doing anything else. And then my daughter now is a sophomore at A&M, wanting to come back to A-Leaf and teach. She's a graduate of of, um, A-Leaf Taylor. And so she wants to be in the classroom. And what's sad is that teachers that I work with and that I talk about um, her coming back into the education field, they're like, no, tell her not to do that. And why? Why? why would they, in their minds, why? The stress, um, the ex- the, all the work and expectations. But, again, she was born to be a teacher, and so she, that's what she's going to do. And that, you know. 
good for her. She's going to be an amazing teacher, but it is a lot. <laughs> part, part of, you know, part of the assumptions that a lot of people make uh, about teaching is the, is the, the low pay compensation. And, and I don't think either one of us would disagree with, with that. To talk a little bit about the, the, from your perspective, how much, how much impact does compensation or how much impact do you think compensation has on any individual making a decision as to whether they go into the education profession? Other professions, when you come out with a degree, will usually make higher than a teacher. And one thing is like, student loans and everything else, you owe so much. I mean, my daughter's going to be almost $50,000 in debt when she's done with graduating. And me, I'm still paying my student loans back. And so that's a big expense. And so, yes, you have time and you do get paid and you do have summers off. But there's other things that teachers do to subsidize the income. And so, you know, whether it's, I do after school program, I'm the director for after school program. I've done that for 10 years at my campus and then summer school and then other jobs as well. There are many, many teachers that I know that take on other responsibility or other um, jobs to bring in more income. Are you talking jobs both inside education and outside of education? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't. I mentioned this earlier. I don't want to get into your personal <laughs> your personal finance. But but I'm curious the 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 notion of teachers spending money out of their own pockets for classrooms. Absolutely. Can, can you quantify that and, and and maybe talk about the things that that you've spent your own money on? I mean, just things like reward systems for the students, um, so that you can you know give them something to work toward. Because I mean, they love anything, but you know you spend money that way. When when it comes to holidays, when you want to have like um, treats for the students, anything like that. Um, books, obviously, school supplies. I mean, there's a wide range of things we spend our money on. And and I. I th- I think that's kind of the the missing story here. A part of the missing story is that we talked about earlier with Dr. with Dr. McPherson about the debt, student debt. I mean, we're actually having young men, young women coming out of college with fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in debt. Absolutely. To go into a profession and then spending their own money in many cases. Uh, and I know sometimes you know, district people that do what I do for a living as a superintendent, I'm having to make decisions every day about how money is allocated and. And if I had a, a magic wand and that that that, uh, that that money tree that we all look for in the backyard, <laughs> uh, I would love to provide every teacher with every single thing that they would like and everything they would want. But obviously that doesn't happen. And 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 so for the general population, for the general community to to take a look at the teaching profession and the commitment that the that, that women like yourself and, and and other men and women like yourself have made. I just want more opportunities for those stories to be told. You could probably sit here and tell stories about colleagues, <laughs> about what they've done and how they've done, and, and no one know about it. You know, what 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 have you found in your 13 years? What do you find most gratifying? I mean, when you go home at the end of a day or at the end of a school year, what what do you reflect on that you kind of makes yourself smile and you go, you know what, this is... Obviously, the students loving technology because... 
they love computers. They love doing anything and, um, on the computers. And like right now, I've worked on PowerPoint, seeing the joy of them learning. But I've also received letters from teacher, from students. I received one at the beginning of the school year from a student who's now in eighth grade. And she said, I inspired her to want to become a computer programmer. And that is why I do it. And so just getting those notes and just the love from the kids. Be nice to be compensated <laughs> for something as important as changing a kid's life, right? Yeah, it means a lot. I mean, it really does. The note, I mean, it was amazing to receive that note. Her a little sister comes to my school now. She attends our school. And the, the um, sister brought me the note, and it just, I saved it. One of the things, and I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but one of the issues that the Texas legislature is dealing with is claiming they're going to try to deal with in the session next spring is teacher compensation and teacher effectiveness. And I'm curious about, and, and one of the numbers that they're throwing out is a goal or a desire is for teachers to have the opportunity to make up to $100,000 a year. Be nice, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, that'd be amazing. Is the opportunity to make anywhere from ninety dollars to $100,000 a year in teaching, is that a difference maker in a, a student's mind who's deciding on what major to go into? I think so, yes. Because, I mean, if you're going to teach, you're going to teach. You're not doing it for the money. Um, but you would probably have students that would want to come into the profession that would be amazing at it, not just for the money. There's there's people that are really good at their craft who get paid a lot of money. Yes. Who do their craft because they want to. Exactly. With or without the money. Why should teaching, and this is a rhetorical question, but why should teaching be any different? I agree. No, I agree completely. Um, would you agree part of the conversation we had earlier about some of the the issues we're seeing with students right now with college-age students going through college and making decisions as to what area they want to choose is the is the classroom management is it the behavior of students is it the testing is, are there other reasons that that you're seeing not only people not going to the profession but some of your colleagues who may be with Cummings for a year or two and then they decide to res- resign or or leave the profession do you see those issues, the testing, the pressures, the stresses? Yes. That's all adding on top of, and I'm only having to do this for $50,000 a year or $60,000 <laughs> a year. I love seeing the new teachers come in. They're so excited. And by the end of the year, they're like, this is a lot. It, it really is a lot of work. And, you know, some of them only last a few years. What, in your opinion, what is it that gets to them? Is it, is it the stress, the pressure? The, the stress and the pressure, all yes. All of it? Yeah, because there's just so much. I mean, you've got not just the lessons, it's all the testing, all the the paperwork. It, it's, it's a whole lot. There's a lot behind the scenes. It's just not the classroom. We do way more than just work with kids. It's almost like you need to change the name of the profession from <laughs> you're managing more than you're, as much as you're teaching, right? Absolutely. What would you like to, to say uh, to the audience that, that you would like for them to know as a teacher, as a professional who's who's highly respected and who chooses to do with what they're doing. You said you would go nowhere else. You would do nothing else. Uh, that's extremely admirable, very, very admirable. Thank you. So coming from someone like you who's credible, what would you want the general population to know about what's going on in public education right now, specific to the teacher, and what are the things that, again, just what is it you would, would you would like for them to know that perhaps they don't know other than through the lens of their student who's been in school? I just wish people knew how much it took and how hard we really do work because 
like I said, it's not just teaching the kids. There's so much behind the scenes. I mean, between staff development and the summers, we don't get the whole summer off. Um, it breaks down to if we do if we do summer school, maybe six weeks. And in that six weeks, we still have to do our, you know, several days of professional devel- development, um, not to mention preparing for the year. So we work pretty much all year round. And I think the the, the, those listening that are not aware that teacher salaries are based upon the days that they're on contract. So in ALEAF, you're on contract 187 days. So whatever your total annual salary is, is divided by 187. And yes, they, you, you get paid for 24, you know, 24 paychecks, two per month. Um, but I think everyone needs to understand that they're being paid for the days they work and we're just spreading it out over, over 12 months. So the the notion of getting paid while you don't work or getting summers off and still getting paid is 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 not accurate. And teachers work. I mean, my hours are seven fifteen to three fifteen contract hours. Uh, most classroom teachers, K through four, it would be seven forty to three forty. But there are teachers that are well there till six thirty, seven o'clock, waiting for the custodian saying, "How much longer can I stay till y'all lock the doors?" You know. So there are. Numerous teachers that do that. They don't leave at 340. And you're speaking for the vast majority of them. Oh, very much. I know. I know. Well, Michelle, thank you for not only doing this 15-minute conversation, but thank you very much for... That's my alarm letting me know that my (laughs) class should be leaving in five minutes and I should be getting kindergarten. So, let me turn that off. I thought I turned it off. I thought that was Kim telling us to wrap it up. No, my phone is telling me to wrap it up. So sorry. All righty. So, Michelle, I want to thank you for for not only sitting in here and, and having this conversation with me about your profession and your personal experiences, uh, but representing many, many teachers. Thank you for what you do every day for, for kids. It's like that little eighth grader. You never know who you're going to impact, right? Absolutely. That's the beauty of it. You go in every day and do the best you can. And the, the, the solace you can find and others can find is that you're impacting someone. And you're usually impacting a lot of them. <laughs> you just don't know it yet. And I'm not sure which ones will ever tell you. But, but thank you again for everything that you do. And we're going to do everything we can do from a school district perspective and from a superintendent's perspective to make teaching more relevant more in line with what people thought it was going to be when they went into the profession <laughs> and to compensate them as the professionals they are and for the the unbelievable value they they, they provide our, our society. That would be amazing. And we'll do our best. All Thank right? you. Thank you again, Michelle. Yes, sir. Thank you. This has been Impact Ed. I'm H.D. Chambers with ALEAF ISD. Uh, please join me for our next podcast with Mr. Scott McClellan with HEB and the president of Good Reason Houston. We will talk about, yeah, we'll talk about HEB a little bit, but we're going to talk about uh, Scott's role in, in the greater Houston area's uh, public education initiatives. So join us next time on Impact Ed.